Hello, and welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Lee Drutman, senior fellow at New America. And today we're really pleased to have a special guest with us. We've, we've got Perry Bacon Jr. here, uh, who's a senior politics writer at 538. Perry has a recent piece about why identity politics seem to be working against Trump and for Biden in this election cycle. Uh, despite widespread belief that this worked against Hillary Clinton, he's been covering um, American election politics, Congress, all things DC, all things elections, and um, and governance for 538 for several years. We've written several pieces together, and so I'm, I'm really excited to have Perry on the show. Welcome, Perry. Uh, Julia, thanks for having me. Do you want to get us started by telling us a little bit about what you mean by identity politics and start us off with uh, some of the ideas in your recent piece? So the piece basically is like, you know, um, after George Floyd's death and the protests there, there was some talk about, oh, we're now talking about law and order. Um, is this law and order? There's a big the election. There's more focus on racial issues. We're sort of moving away from COVID maybe. Will this help Donald Trump and probably hurt Biden? Because I think some discussion in 2016 was about the idea that maybe Hillary talked about identity politics too much and maybe that Trump talked about them in the way people liked and that and that factor pl- uh, helped Trump win. And so when I mean identity politics, what I really mean is like issues around race, identity, gender, and things like this. I'm talking about immigration. I'm talking about Black Lives Matter. So I'm, I mean identity politics in a very broad way. We can probably discuss that term itself and the limitations of that term. So my the our idea was basically in 2016, we had a very identity racialized election, Hillary lost. The conventional wisdom was to some extent that Hillary lost because it was was about identity and that was bad for her. But now the election is that has the same dynamic. And George Floyd died, Biden's ahead by around six points then. Biden is now ahead by about nine points. So we've had all, we've had weeks of discussion about race and Biden has kind of gained in the polls to some extent. And so this piece kind of argues there's maybe five reasons for that. And I'll go through them very briefly here. One was basically that Donald Trump is president and he's in the White House. And so that means two things. First of all, public opinion often moves against the person in the White House generally. So maybe uh, an election about race is bad for Democrats when Obama's president, but good for Democrats when um, Trump is president. Related, Trump is very unpopular. So it could be that if Trump is for spaghetti, spaghetti becomes a more popular, less popular food to eat in America right now. That could just be the case that Trump is particularly unpopular. So that's one theory is just that Trump means everything is bad, particularly identity politics for Republicans. The second theory was 2016 was kind of a weird, fluky election. We shouldn't judge much from it. And in fact, if you think about the way race has divided the electorate, Democrats have won the popular vote six of the last seven elections. So maybe being the party that gets most of the votes from Black, Latino, and Asian voters is probably most of the time good and not bad. So the second theory is 2016 was a bit of a fluke. The third theory was that um, it's hard for Trump to win on identity politics election when he's running against um, Joe Biden, white man known for sort of moderate views instead of when Trump is running against uh, a woman and Hillary Clinton and to some extent running against Barack Obama's presidency the way he was in 16. Uh, the fourth theory was that maybe the electorate has changed its racial views. Like if you see these polls showing Black Lives Matter is much more popular than it used to be, for example, it could be that in 2020, the electorate has different racial views and is more anti-Trump's racial views than the 2016 electorate was. And the final theory was that kind of, it's not just that Biden, it's not just Biden versus Trump, but if you look at like how Facebook or, um, or Nike or Netflix or lots of other corporate America companies and major institutions, if you listen to how they talk about race, they are saying Black Lives Matter. They are saying, you know, there's too much racial inequality. So it's not just, not just Trump versus Biden, it's sort of, corporate America, institutional America, universities, like all the powerful institutions in America have one message, Biden has that message, 
and then Trump is the, on the other side of it. And in that kind of dynamic, of course, Trump is struggling. So that's kind of the institutional view of it. So those are the five theories, which I, which I promised to explain in a very short way, but I took a longer than I wanted to. But that's kind of the idea of the piece. No, that's um, that's great. I, I'm going to hand this over to, to Lee, but I did want to note that I think that political science really would do well, I think, to grapple with this, the corporate example here. I, you know, I really kind of knew things had shifted when I got the, the email from Ann Taylor Loft um, about Black Lives Matter. But the so I think that's really and I feel like as a political scientist, I don't quite have the right tools for that. Maybe others do. I, Lee, you're up to to respond here and pick up on one of the theories and offer some thoughts and then we'll go to James. So I, I think I mean, we'll should probably start with the, the first theory. I, mean, I think there's a, a bit of truth in all five theories, but I think that the first theory is perhaps the most important to tackle because it says a lot about what we should expect in the years to come, which is uh, to say that if the sort of wokeness on the, the left, particularly among highly educated uh, white liberals, is primarily a reaction to Donald Trump, it suggests that maybe some of that wokeness will fade a little bit when uh, Donald Trump is no longer in the White House. Uh, and also, I think it's very easy for liberals and Democrats to uh, say that there's too much racism, that there's systemic injustice in the system when we're not actually having a, a serious argument about what steps can actually be taken because Congress is controlled by Republicans in the Senate, Donald Trump is in the White House. So all politics are theoretical at this point. But if Democrats get unified control over government, then we're going to have an actual debate about how far we want to go. Do we want to talk about aggressive desegregation? Do we want to talk about reparations? I think as you uh, found out in a subsequent piece with Meredith Conroy, uh, not all those politics are super popular among white liberals. So Trump is deeply unpopular. Some of that is just because people dislike Trump. I think the, his handling of the COVID crisis has further hurt his popularity. I think he's taken a, a rather caricaturish response to these crises of, of police brutality, uh, and that's hurt his standing. So I think it's, you know, as with a lot of policies, people support them in the abstract, but then when Democrats actually get into government, there's a there, there's a backlash against them. So you know, I, I do think that you know we we see this time and again in public opinion that there's a, a thermostatic quality to it that people like liberal policies more when Republicans are in the White House and then people move in a more conservative direction when Democrats are in the White House. So to me, that's a that's a pretty compelling explanation. It probably explains I would say about half of what's going on. James, you want to respond? Yeah, I, this is a great piece. Um, I, I really enjoyed the piece. And I, I agree, like Lee, with I think all five uh, theories in varying degrees. And I want to offer not a sixth theory, but a, a, I think a qualification of, of the five. And I think this will help us in our conversation today. And it really gets at what we mean by identity politics, which I think is an imperfect term. Conservatives... You, if you say the word identity politics around conservatives, it's like the worst thing you can say. And you're immediately declared an enemy of the state, if you will. Um, and for the longest time, I subscribed to that. And then I spent some more time thinking about identity politics. I wrote a piece, I believe last year, maybe the year before, called Make America Diverse Again. That really gets at uh, this, this nature of identity politics and how we view it on both the left and the right. And it seems to me that today... On both the left and the right, there's this worrisome tendency to gloss over the, the role that diversity plays in our politics and the conflict that it generates. And, and the reason why I think it's important here is that both have a tendency to subsume individual difference to demographic categories, I think, on the, in the case of liberals or um, abstract ideas in the case of, of conservatives. And 
identity politics, uh, when you approach it from a kind of multiculturalist ideological lens or from an abstract natural rights lens, um, it, it becomes an ideology that's inconsistent with, with American politics. An individual difference, it seems to me, regardless of its source, is the very basis of equality and freedom. And that's a long way of saying that. And, you know, in this, Lee mentioned your piece, Perry, with Meredith on um, um, white Democrats and, and polling and how it differs from black Democrat, Democrats. And on a recent podcast that you uh, at 538, you mentioned uh, you know the diversity among Black Americans and the divides um, among Black Americans and and what and I think that's really interesting because when you are looking at an other right when it's polarized in that sense and you're part of a of a persecuted brotherhood if you will um, whether that be Black Americans whether that be good God faring church going Americans whether that be white liberal enlightened Americans it's easy to subsume individual difference. And so in that environment, you know, it's okay. Um, you can say, you can use the term identity politics. You can talk about identity politics because it's not posing a, as great a threat. Um, but when you're in, when you're in the position of governing, when you're in the position of trying to actually uh, do things, not that the Trump um, administration and Republicans are doing that, um, it becomes a little bit different. And so I think when you have Trump and, and Clinton running against each other in 2016, it's a little bit different because neither one is in the White House per se. Um, but now you have a situation where uh, you have one side in the White House. And I'm rambling here, and that's not very well articulated. And I hope to to make this, you know, I'm just throwing a lot at the wall right now, but I hope to unpack a lot of these ideas uh, as we go. So I'm going to pick up on this question about identity politics in a way that I think is is sort of is in the same theoretical vein of what James is trying to do, but goes in a little bit different direction. This is also just sort of my personal, I think, hobby horse about about identity politics in democratic circles and democratic debates. So I want to raise an issue specifically about the the argument, the 2016 identity politics was a fluke, um, or rather 2016 was a fluke. Um, the, um, you know, I've written a lot about election interpretation, including on, um, on 538 about how the 2016 election was interpreted. And it occurs to me that like, if I could go back and do some of this work that I did in the, like, earlier part of the last decade again, I would go back and really think more deeply about power dynamics in the way that people push election narratives, right? Everybody has a theory of, of 2016, and there's so many questions because it was such a surprising result, and also because it was such a close result, um, which I think is really important here, right? Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote. And yet a lot of the narratives that have come out of 2016 do not reflect that. And I think that's particularly true of the whole identity politics hurts Democrats argument. It's it, obviously there's an electoral college strategy component to that, right? Part of that, part of that narrative that 2016 was about identity politics in a way that hurt Clinton was, is not about the nation as a whole. It is like specifically about white men of a certain age group in Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And that's like, I'm not trying to ignore the electoral map, but at the same time, the, the narrative that identity politics hurts Democrats and the fact that that came so strongly out of 2016 is not, is not neutral, right? It's not just like a neutral analytical position. It's not at all surprising that an explanation for the election that benefits historically powerful people has become, you know, one of the dominant narratives and that that's like that's not that might be different in the way that plays out in the democratic party but just because the democratic party is the party that tends to rely on those votes doesn't mean that i, I think this gets to kind of like how woke are white democrats and my argument is like when power is at stake you know maybe not not very um and that that argument serves a particular demographic. So like you could envision a, a version of identity politics in which the Democrats really like double down, right? And they want to get minority votes, the women's votes, LGBT votes, young people's votes, and like that is a big win, right? You can imagine that being it's expensive and it's maybe not super strategic. But that's like a lot of, you know, that's a lot of votes. And I think public opinion 
even when Obama was in the White House, I take Lee's point about thermostatic opinion, but even when Obama was in the White House, public opinion swung on a variety of those those issues, right? But So it's a risky strategy, but national politics entails risk. It's not just a strategic calculation, I think, that top-level Democrats don't want to do this. I suspect that this is because powerful Democrats don't want to. Developing a coalition that is not just reliant on minority votes, but actually puts those voices, like truly, you know, centers the voices of historically marginalized people and lets them set the agenda and run the show rather than doing the bare minimum to get those votes, that actually threatens a lot of powerful interests that are still important in the Democratic Party. So I think, like, I'm not totally sure how this fits in with your larger theory. I just, I think we need to to interrogate how these kinds of election narratives, particularly around identity politics, how these get floated and who has an interest in in floating them. I think I actually said white male, white often male pundits quickly leaped liberals, often Democrats. White pundits who are often male quickly leaped to the conclusion that Hillary talked about race and gender too much. Like there was that famous Mark Lilla piece in the New York Times uh, week review section right after the election. I think, I feel like Tom Vilsack, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden in November 2016 in December gave some version of the comment, we can't talk about race or gender too much. And that's kind of the problem. We have to talk about pocketbook issues for regular middle-class people. They didn't ever say white, but that was the implication, obviously. So yes, I think Julie is totally right here. I don't know what, in terms of thinking about the, you know, I try to live in a world in which I sort of accept the narratives that are out there and kind of, you know, the, I know what the dominant narratives are. and I know I'm not a setter of those dominant narratives um, for a variety of reasons. So I try to like look at the narratives as they are. But yes, I think the leap to Hillary said deplorables and therefore she lost was silly, stupid, done a lot in a stupid way, but it sort of played to a lot of people's existing interest. And it sort of made it easier for people who wanted a Joe Biden style person to win the nomination and who wanted the party to be controlled by Joe Biden style people instead of Barack Obama's or Hillary Clinton, women, like the people who wanted to restore, you know, white male power to the Democratic Party, took advantage of this narrative being out there. And that was something they wanted to do. And I think it's worth thinking about that to put a more blunt version of what I think Julie was getting at. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's right. And, and Julia, I, I take your point. And I think I, I, like you, like to unpack narratives and get behind them. Maybe it's the, the, the postmodernist in me. Um, don't tell my conservative friends that. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the things, and I just briefly, and, you know, I'll turn it over to Lee or Perry, but, you know, as I'm maybe trying to explain what I, a little bit earlier, what I was saying is that identity politics today, it seems to me, it's different than 2016 because in part it's an it's an individualized discourse, right? We 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 talk about George Floyd, we talk about Breonna Taylor. We are, you know, when I went back to DC recently and I was walking downtown and I looked at the the all of the posters and pictures up around Lafayette Park and they were all individualized. I mean not all, but there were a lot of people and a lot of names and a lot of um, people talking about what happened to those names. And I think when, as I recollect in 2016, and again, I could be wrong and, and I may not be remembering this correctly, but it seems to me that the discourse around identity politics was not uh, so much, um, uh, you know, individualized uh, back then. The debate wasn't. We, you know, we have Hillary Clinton saying deplorables. We have large swaths of people and, and we talk about broad categories. And I think when we talk about it in that way, uh, it becomes easier for for white Americans or for all Americans to dismiss it. But when we talk about individuals and, and how diverse they are, and yes, they may have certain things in common, but we're starting from that individual perspective and then coming up to the Black Lives Matter movement, coming up to this broader frustration with the system, I think it becomes a little bit easier um, easier to, uh, to, to, to take, because I think that view is fundamentally, um, not only in line with, but it's the foundation of, a, kind of the American political regime. And I think it's harder to, to, to stop that. I mean, that's why, you know, 
you, you know, kind of racist type um, narratives throughout American history never dwell long at the individual level. They often they always go to these broad categories of people and they make it about abstract things. And and I think that's maybe I'm wrong and I don't know what you, what you guys think. But my recollection of 2016 was that the debate differed in that respect. I just briefly disagree with that pretty strongly. I think that there were the Democratic Convention mentioned had a featured specific black women whose children were killed by the police. They, you know, we talked about names of those people. So I, Tamar Rice was a name that was brought up. I actually just think, to put it bluntly, white Americans have seen the light on racial issues. And I think that they don't want to admit that in public very often, but I think that the story that Black Lives Matter was telling for six years is being heard now in a way that it was like the videos and stuff have become more clear and people can't ignore that. But I think people have moved and they were maybe wrong before. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not sure I disagree with it. Um, for whatever reason, many, you know, perhaps many white Americans and I don't have data, I'm purely speaking anecdotally here or thinking, you know, just um, through it. It seems to me that um, Perhaps, you know, what has awakened white Americans to this issue is the rapid succession of, of high profile events that certainly were there. I mean, we can talk about Ferguson. We know there are other events that have happened um, and that the, the, the coverage that they received. We had a past um, um, uh, episode with uh, Omar Wasau. We talked about media coverage and elevating issues and how that changes the debate as well in the narrative. And so maybe that that plays a part of it. And, you know, I'd, maybe while the discourse may have been individualized the way that, that large numbers of white Americans saw that discourse or perceived that discourse for whatever reason um, may not have been individualized in a way that it is now. Of course, I could be just completely wrong throughout as well. So I fully concede that possibility. So I want to flip this this narrative a little bit. We, we're talking a lot about whether or not this helps Democrats, but the other side of it is, does it hurt Trump and the Republicans. So last week we we had a conversation with Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson uh, about their new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, in which they argue that the only way that Republicans stay competitive at all in America is by ginning up the racism because they're they're selling economic policies that are incredibly unpopular, but by driving a wedge on on racial and identity issues, they can win over some white working class voters. So, I mean, another way to think about it is that Trump was going to lose anyway in 2020 because he is presiding over an economic collapse, uh, incredible mishandling of the COVID crisis. Republicans have pursued tremendously unpopular economic policies. And the only way he has even a shot of winning is by turning up the volume to what are we up to like now 13 on this on this this fear mongering about monuments i mean it's it's totally out there but like that's that's his that's his only strategy and that's republicans only strategy because they put themselves in such a corner by supporting such unpopular economic policies do you think there's anything to that theory perry I mean, I appreciated uh, the the Jacob Paul book. I thought it was a very well done book. I mean, I'd be curious what you guys think, but I think in this dynamic we're in now, I don't think that defending Confederate monuments is good strategy. I just don't. I think the electorate is sort of maybe was never there. I know the polls say taking down Confederate monuments is not that popular. I've seen them. Like the, the Americans are sort of split on that, but I'm not sure going around defending Confederate monuments is that smart. I don't, I don't look at what Trump is doing right now and think it's good electoral strategy. I think good electoral strategy would be to sort of focus on fixing the COVID problem and focus and getting the economy back to normal. I, I sort of think, to be honest with you, I sort of think that some of the writing about the election. I think that Trump won the Republican primary by talking about race in a particular way and that may have helped him. And he may have just been a famous person too, but I'm not sure in the general election it helped that much. I think people wanted a different party in charge. And I don't think I don't think what he's doing is actually that smart. I think he's running uphill. Like the piece was getting at was that like corporate America is now sort of woke in a certain way, and that makes it harder to make this case very well. So I just think that I don't think this is a good strategy. I, I can't repeat myself, but I just don't think this is. Um, I think that reading the electorate that if you dial the only way to win is to dial up the racism really hard. 
I don't think this correct as a as a political strategy aside from the morals. Of it. So I'm going to jump in here. I want to respond to to what Perry just said, and also. Um, to some of the things that were raised before about what's changed in the American electorate and specifically like what's changed in in white America with regard to the politics of race. So first, I think this is sort of my theory of Trump and also presidential politics generally, which is that there's long been kind of two strategies to presidential politics, to trying to win a presidential election. And one is essentially... Like you try to cobble together a patchwork coalition and hope that 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 helps you in the electoral college, right? So that was essentially the Trump strategy in 2016. It was really never about winning a national majority. And lo and behold, they didn't win a national majority, right? It, but you appealed to people in a kind of geographically strategic way and you mobilize this, what I've been referring to this as minoritarian politics, by which I basically mean the the kind of core group of voters in the electorate who are again sort of lean white lean older lean more male um and lean very conservative on specifically on racial issues right not even necessarily on economic issues and you kind of mobilize that electorate in a way that patches together a winning coalition I think that this pieces of this logic have been present in presidential politics for a long time. Pieces of that of the sort of base mobilization are evident, for example, in in the the Bush Rove 2004 strategy. But I think they also go back much further than that. And I think that they they seem odd for a variety of reasons in 21st century politics, but also are relative to. I mean, if you're a Republican and you're looking at the losses of 2012 and 2008, it maybe kind of makes sense for Trump to do and it was successful. It's a risky strategy, but it's successful, right? The other way you run for president is you try and build an actual national majority and hope that a national popular majority translates into an electoral college majority. Um, and that for Democrats has different has different pitfalls, right? But I think those are two distinct kinds of strategies. And I think that's where you're seeing the Trump administration double down is that is a sort of hope that that patchwork strategy will work again. With regard to this question we were raising a second ago, I just want to say this before I forget, even though kind of just jumping back into something from before, we were talking about, you know, what's what's changed or what has changed people's minds in the white segment of the electorate to like what has led to this um, increase in support for Black Lives Matter. Perry described it as white America has seen the light. I think about this a lot um, based on observations over the last couple of years that like, white people will talk about race all day as long as they don't talk about themselves having race. Um, it's fine for other people to have race. It's when you start talking about white people that white people get nervous um, and don't like being lumped in a group. And I've been reading a lot of sociology that that deals with this and deals with the way that that racism persists in institutions in ways that isn't that isn't like isn't articulated in so many words. And I think that one of the things that happened in the Trump presidency, this is a little different than the the kind of responding, be, the country becomes more liberal in response to, to Trump, right? I think what actually, another thing that's happened is the kind of thing you see described in Ashley Jardina's work about white identity politics. It becomes, it becomes undeniable that that exists, right? The Trump presidency brings that to the fore. And you can no longer just pretend like, oh, this is a colorblind country, this is a post-racial country, you know, whiteness isn't important. Like, these things all become much harder to hold in one's mind. And so if you're trying to resolve cognitive dissonance and you're a white voter who believes in racial equality early on, on any level, one way you can think about this is like, okay, how can I actually accept my situation and try to use this for good? And I think that's what you're starting to see in a lot of this corporate discourse. And I have to, here I'll just admit, I've been watching a lot of Hulu. So I've seen like the same ads over and over. <laughs> and I, I have them memorized. But I think um, Progressive Insurance has one about the talk you know, Sprite has a bunch, but a lot of them really are about white Americans acknowledging their privilege. And that's a whole discourse category that 
we could probably have a whole other podcast about. But I think that's not like that's not just an accidental feature. That is a that is an intentional feature. That is what's happening. And I think that some of what's happened is the Trump presidency has opened up that space where it is is very difficult to not acknowledge whiteness as an important political identity. Um, so I'm not sure where that takes us in terms of thinking about 2020 or how we move forward, but I just wanted to throw that out there while it was fresh in my mind. Seems like one day all of corporate America decided Black Lives Matter was sort of safe to say and not controversial. Like they wouldn't say, like Black Lives Matter is a fairly divisive movement, even if, you know, it's controversial. Do we know why corporate America decided one day on like May 26th that they should be for it now and how that happened and how we should think about that? I have a couple of theories on that. One theory is the fact that uh, as Hillary Clinton was fond of noting when she lost that she represented two thirds of the economic activity in America and that just the idea that a lot of consumers and especially young people who are in the, the core demographic that corporations are trying to reach out to are quite racially liberal. So from a business perspective, for a lot of these companies, you know, I, I think it makes sense to be on, on the woke side of the debate. And you know, it's clear that the culture has shifted. And, you know, I think the culture shifted before the politics shifted on this this issue. And you know, I, I think that's, you know, as Julia said at the outset, I think it's something that is, as political scientists, we have a hard time operationalizing, uh, to use a political science term, a, as a variable. We, we don't really know how to think about shifts in culture, uh, sort of this, this idea that it hangs outside of politics, but it really doesn't. And I think your point about corporate America suddenly becoming woke I think that that has tremendous power. Now, the question is whether how much of that wokeness is performative. And, and, you know, my criticism of a lot of the diversity initiatives in corporate America is that they're about, oh, you know, we we put a black person on our board of directors, but we're still marketing sugary soft drinks to, to poor neighborhoods. And so they so they all get diabetes, um, you know, or, yeah, we put a put a, uh, you know, a Hispanic person on our board of directors as a bank. But, you know, we're still engaging in incredibly predatory banking practices and not, you know, and charging poor, poor minorities, higher interest, much higher interest rates for their loans. So and the question for me is how much of this is just performative and symbolic and how much of it is actually going to translate into public policies, you know, that that help people who actually need tremendous help as opposed to preying on them. Yeah. And Lee, I think you saw something similar with the LGBTQ movement and like North Carolina with government uh, corporate sponsors threatening to pull at, you know, their support for various activities in the past and and ultimately, you know, trying to pressure the the state to, to change course on the bathroom bill, among other things. So I think that's, you know, we see this um, in other areas as well. Yeah, Perry, do you want to respond to any of that? I think I'm going to respond with a question. So I wrote both this identity politics piece, then I did a subsequent piece about white Democrats and sort of their views on racial issues and where they differ and agree, differ and some some extent where they agree and some extent where they disagree with black Democrats. And a lot of the responses I've gotten back are, comments along the lines of what Lee said, which is like about corporate America, which is how much of this is performative and how much of this is actually real. And I guess my response to that is like, it seems to me obvious that some of it is performative, some of it is real, and it's really hard to assess that. Like, isn't that sort of the, is that, I mean, I guess I get that question a lot is, my, my response might be, does that question, why is that question important? Because I, I think we sort of know that race is a hard subject to talk about. So all 
conversation about race is gonna have some performative element. And I sort of assume that's sort of a given already. Do you all agree with that? Like all conversations about race have some performative element. We're talking about voters, corporations, and people across races and so on. It's a hard fraught subject. So performance is necessary and we should sort of assume that already and maybe not debate it too much, but what do you all think about that idea? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great, to jump in here, I think that's a great point. And I think performance, all politics is performative. That's the whole point of politics, where you 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 take action and you make statements in the realm of public, uh, in the public sphere, and you're performing. And it's almost irrelevant what's behind that. I think what, what Lee might be saying in terms of, you know, banks with Hispanics on their board, but still engaging in predatory lending practices in Hispanic neighborhoods, I think that then speaks to kind of a rhetorical gesture versus a, you know, a performative gesture where, you know, and we have our two major parties right now, their rhetoric and their actions are completely at odds with, with each other. And so I think it really underscores that difference. But I, I agree with you. I, I, politics is about performance. That's the whole thing. And if you take the performative aspect away from politics, you no longer have politics. But I'm, I'm going to ask you a different question, but I want to let Lee jump in and Julia on this as well. Yeah, I mean, so obviously the performative comes first. What what I guess I I worry about is that the performative and the symbolic becomes a, a substitute for actual action. I mean, if you know, if you look at you know, I, I think it's hard to have the conversation about race in America without talking about economic inequality because. What we've seen over the last 40 years is that there has been a tremendous economic gap in the fortunes of of white Americans and black Americans and Hispanic Americans. And I think a a lot of the conversation about policing also has to take into account uh, the fact that there are a a tremendous number of neighborhoods that are are stuck in poverty in which crime is rampant because there's not economic opportunities. And I mean, uh, this is sort of the, the, the William Julius Wilson Point that when you don't have economic opportunities for communities, there, there's a kind of community decay. So it's not, you know, I mean, policing is a problem, but it's not, we can't, if we care about racial justice, we can't stop at just policing. And this is where we get into the, the question of, you know, what, what is white America? Oh, black America for, you know, for decades and decades of, of, uh, you know, economic policies that have, have uh, fallen and economic development and economic investments and public education, you know, which have disproportionately benefited white people. It's not just slavery. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a lot more than that. And, you know, white America, white liberals are not as supportive of reparations. They're not as supportive of, you know, real efforts to, to, to integrate schools. And, you know, that, that, that gets at some real tension there. And that's, I guess, you know, what I what I worry about a little bit, you know, is that we, we need to have a much broader conversation about economic inequality, too. And I, I think a lot of corporate sponsorship is is just not going to go there. And uh, and I do worry about that. Let me say to just be very direct here. In my reporting about this, the Republicans I find to be pretty honest about it. Republicans often in the polls are not for reparations. They're not for these big sort of dramatic changes. Like I want to zone in on the, on the I want to zone in on policy as opposed to symbolism here. So when we talk about policy, generally Republicans are opposed to some of these more radical ideas, defund the police, and so on. If you talk to very liberal Democrats, they are generally for them reparations, reforming the police, so on. The problem is corporate America tends to be run by these kind of left of center Democrats. Those people also tend to be mayors of large cities. They also tend to be, say, the Democratic nominee for president and the likely Kamala Harris, the likely Democratic vice president nominee. And on those people who have a lot of influence and power, you can't tell what they're for. It's not even really a race thing. 
in Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, you know, renamed an area or, you know, put up a big sign about Black Lives Matter in one of the areas. A week later, the activists who were calling for reducing police funding, she basically told them to F off. So, like, Muriel Bowser is Black, by the way. So it's like, it's, it's not even a racial thing particularly. It's like the sort of centrist wing of the Democratic Party, it wants to be woke, isn't sure what it actually wants to do in terms of policy. And that sort of covers the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Sheryl Sandbergs and the Kamala Harris's and the Joe Bidens and the Muriel Bess. And that's the real tension here is that we know on these sort of radical or more radical racial policy ideas that the left Democrats are for them, the Republicans are mostly against them, but the people who sort of have a lot of power in the country, that big middle part of the Democratic Party, the sort of politicians, the people between sort of Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, we don't really know what they're for, and they're going to do a pretty strong job of obscuring it. My prediction is you're about to hear a lot of discussion about reparations in which centrist Democrats say, well, I'm for the concept of them, but I just don't know how we could get it done in practice. And with those people, you can't tell. Do they oppose the policy and they're just making excuses? Or do they support the policy, but they actually don't know how to implement it? And that's the core of real core tension is we have a lot of people who want to be in the middle on these issues. And when it's a racial issue, the incentive to be in the middle and obscure your position is actually very high. Yeah. So I want to jump in here and sort of uh, come in hot with some language stuff, because I, I think that we have missed the boat a little bit on the concept of performativity. And this is pretty common, I think, for political scientists. And we sort of, I think, influence journalists in this way to talk, to use the word performativity when what we really mean is symbolism. Performativity is human, humanist, humanity scholars use it. My understanding is it means it's, it's a process of constructing social meaning. And so it's the opposite of this is unimportant. This is symbolism. It, you know, it's, it's flimsy, right? It's that... This is the way that, I mean, Judith Butler is the theorist who's most commonly associated with this. And apparently she's emailed people for using it wrong in podcasts. So, um. no, and that's the that's the way in which I was trying to convey as well. I mean, it's the entire meaning of our politics comes out of performance. Butler's work sort of indicates that it's like it's about gender and it's that, you know, gender is the fact that people perform these kinds of expectations of people because of their their gender. And I think when we talk about performativity in how we talk about race, I think I just I'm going to riff on what Perry just said, which is that um, which is that it's the performance is not in people talking about their conceptual support for X, Y or Z, right, or saying they're for something when really they're not. I think that that is another thing. And I'll get to what I think that is in a second. Um, but the performance is in strategy, right? That's that's where people in this Hillary Clinton to Jeb Bush muddled middle of powerful people are constructing a very important set of social meaning because instead of saying, well, you know, here, I'm not for this because it's going to take power away from me or because I don't believe in collective accountability or whatever, they say, well, it's not strategic, right? That's the performance. That is where I think, you know, very powerful social meaning has been constructed around this notion that we can't be too radical on these issues because it's not strategic. Um, and that's, you know, widely, a widely accepted notion, you know, just in the way that like blue for boys and footballs, whatever, and pink for girls, you know, is kind of widely socially accepted and seen as a, as natural, right? Seen as as the, the order of the universe. And obviously people talk about why that's problematic. And I think we should talk about why strategy is problematic. I did not come on this podcast expecting to do a clunky gender analogy or explain performativity, but here, here we are. Wait, and Julia, I just started to interrupt. I think conservatives on the, on the right have that same thing. If you're talking about, say, balancing the budget in the 2010-11 uh, political debates and, and you know centrist conservatives are like, well, yeah, we love to balance the budget and we want to balance the budget, but we just don't know how. Or that's not the smart, if we do it right now, now it's going to end up with we lose or Democrats win and the Republic falls into the ocean. <laughs> right. That That's always the end goal is the Republic. Right. Or that's always the sort of end threat is the Republic is going to fall in the ocean. But so to answer Perry's question, which is, you know, how, how are we talking about this? How should we talk about this? Or like, is this the right distinction? I think it's it's not the right distinction. There's always going to be the create language and symbol and creation of social meaning and politics. And there's always going to be some some separation between 
that conversation and the policy conversation, although I do think, I think it's important to try and align them um, and to try and make politics mean something about policy, right? For the, so if we're having a political debate in the context of an election, that for that to realistically have a chance of being translated into policy. But I think that the distinction we should talk about is what kinds of actions or policies or ideas are abstract expressions versus what kinds actually will alter the the power landscape and force people to give something up. And that, I think, alters the conversation in a a couple of ways. Um, But the first thing that that I think is also like lurking there starts to then get back into the economic conversation and the corporate conversation and some of the issues that Lee brought up which is that when we start thinking about, okay, what are not just abstract concepts we can all believe in or privilege to acknowledge or whatever, but like what forces people to give something up? Then we ask who is being asked to give up what? And that immediately goes into some tough questions about who has what, who has power, who has, who has economic resources and about inequality. And that's where I think things get really, things really start to, to become unstable, right? And, and fall apart. We have to have conversations about who has a modest amount of power or of resources, but more than others and needs to give something up. And what kind of pain does that entail? But also the vast inequality of everybody else. Because I, I think there's like a loop sometimes. You hear this loop a lot when you talk about white privilege with middle class white Americans, where there's racial privilege, but then people say, well, but I worked hard and I only have X. And it's like on some level, that's that's valid. And who do, who really has a lot of resources, right, is, is as Lee said, is banks, is big corporations, is an increasingly small percentage of Americans wielding those resources. And so then we actually have to have a, a complicated and potentially painful and potentially destabilizing conversation about the linkages across race and across class and economic power. And like, that's, that's the hard conversation. You know, it's easy to put a sign in your yard. Um, It's hard to think about what you're going to give up. And it's also hard to think about how you would ask others to give things up. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I think, and I think that's such an important point, Julia. And, you know, I, I think a lot about Obamacare, you know, which, you know, on its face, you know, most of the provisions of Obamacare were extremely popular. Even the states like Kentucky that have implemented their own versions of Obamacare without calling it Obamacare, those programs are popular. But there was a way in which the right weaponized Obamacare as basically taking your money so that, you know, poor black people can have health care. And that turned out to be a a, a successful political strategy, I think, for for Republicans, although, you know, there there was no way to translate that into actual policy because it turned out that people actually like the option of being able to uh, get health care through Obamacare. Uh, And it was actually something that, that people valued tremendously regardless of you know, of who they were. Uh, and, you know, that's something that I, uh, you know, I, again, you know, I, I wonder what will happen in 2022 and 2024 when Trump is no longer, uh, you know, the the Republican uh, president. And maybe you have a more moderate uh, sounding Republican like a Nikki Haley or a Marco Rubio, who's talking in more coded language uh, as Democrats push more aggressive programs. Uh, and I, I just wonder where that leads. Perry, do you want to jump in here? I think we should we should let our guests talk and we should start moving toward our wrap up. No, no, James, did you want to follow up though? I, I've said a lot. Go, James, do you want to follow up briefly? Well, I just had a, a quick question for you, Perry, uh, that kind of gets back to your uh, piece and, and trying to think about what's changed and why identity politics or the message of law and order isn't working for Trump. And I think if we look at that, you know, it did work for Nixon and both stressed this law and order uh, message. But Nixon, I think, stressed we forget this stressed law and order and the racial um, undertones. Um, he stressed it very gently. It was a gently packaged thing. And he you know, if you read Nixon's first inaugural, it's actually quite um, 
astonishing how he talks about, you know, the, you know, we need to lower our voices of angry rhetoric that fans discontents and hatred, you know, and hatreds, all of that kind of stuff. And he doesn't, Nixon isn't Trump. He doesn't lose his temper in public. He doesn't engage in bombastic and angry rhetoric. And for that reason, I think maybe, you know, it worked for him in a way that it doesn't for, for Trump because the strategy isn't, um, is effectively, um, implemented on Trump's part. And so maybe it's part that white Americans have seen the light. And then maybe it's, and I wondered what you think about this. This is just a theory I have that came to my mind is that, and it's also part Trump just can't implement the strategy effectively. I totally agree with you that there is a Republican who could criticize the protest movement, but seem like they could care about racial issues. They could talk about George Floyd's death and seem deeply personally affected by it. Like this weekend, like John Lewis is a hero to a lot of people. The fact that Donald Trump had so dismissed John Lewis in the past that it became a debate about what kind of statement will Trump issue? Should he issue a statement at all? What should he do? This, that's like Trump has gotten so far down the bin here that on sort of, you know, John Lewis, like Martin Luther King at this point, and like everybody's got to be for him. Even if you don't like him, you've got to be for him. And like the fact that Trump can't answer and can't address those issues tells me he's just been so like, I don't know what the polling was on Nixon, but a lot of polls show the plurality, if not the majority of Americans, consider Donald Trump a racist. Like, that's, that's, of course, mostly Democrats, but that's still a large number of people. Like when Kanye West said George Bush doesn't care about black people, a lot of black people thought that that was not true of the broader electorate. Bush was never considered a, a racist by the broader, I don't think it's true, by the way, but Bush was also not considered a racist by the, by the large majority electorate and versus that um, versus Trump is. I wanted to ask one other question, and I know I'm not supposed to ask questions, but the point I made in the piece that I think is really important, but sort of that I worry about about just thinking about this is that I think that a lot of the people who I think are interested in creating a narrative have said Biden won the primary because he's moderate and most Democrats are moderate. It seems to me that a lot of the black people that voted for Biden, their second choice was not Pete Buttigieg. So the idea that Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar did so much worse than Biden and did not win any black voters does suggest that people were voting in the primary based on affinity for Biden and sort of knowledge of Biden and a view that Biden was electable, not that this list of moderate policies, like if Medi if being against Medicare for all makes you electable, then somebody would have voted for Pete Buttigieg in South Carolina and nobody did. So coming to the general election, it seems to me again that the strength of Biden is who he is as a somebody people like, people find trustworthy, somebody who's an older white man. And I don't think it's telling us much about Biden is like I read this piece in Vox that I found very irritating, that it made it seem like Biden is not responding to Twitter. He's not embracing the abolished police movement. I promise if Kamala Harris was a Democratic nominee for president, she would not be calling for reparations and abolishing the police because she would run in the same manner that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, Bill Clinton, et cetera, did. Like the Democratic, like Biden is not running in a much different way than past Democratic nominees is. I would argue Biden's feature is not moderatism, but being older, white, and male. And that has some scary implications, I think, but I think it's worth being honest about that as opposed to suggesting Biden is running this brilliant campaign by not being for abolishing the police. I, I think you're absolutely right, Perry. That's all I have to say. Oh, oh dear. I have so much to say about the Democratic primary. Um, although I had kind of actually forgotten about Pete Buttigieg, who I was like writing furiously about last summer. I think that, that says very little about Pete Buttigieg and a lot about 2020 as a year. I I I feel like I feel like you loved Mayor Pete. Yeah, I I very rarely love politicians, or at but least I, you love I to become, talk about them. I develop weird obsessions with talking about them. So I think um, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've obviously I've talked to you a lot about it, Perry. As we've both tried to figure it out, um, and write about it in various venues. But I think that one of the things that got really skewed in the Democratic debate is the way that 
those sort of broad primary seasons, the way we talked about ideology. And I'm going to try to bring this back around to what we're talking about today. And it's maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. Um, but I think that particularly the question of race, but not only the question of race, brings some complexity to to how Democrats talk about intra-party ideology. So, as I, I will add, it is my goal in every podcast that when we're at the hour mark, I'm going to turn it around to intra-party politics and monologue over everybody. That is my that is my goal. So That's what makes this distinct as a podcast. <laughs> right. It's really part of our brand. It's like, how will I turn this into intra-party politics? And, and, um, and, and Perry just set it up for me. So I think that the debate that came out of the 2020 season about moderate slash centrist, I hear people use this word centrist a lot, versus the other thing, which is sort of undefined, is actually, like, this is an area where we could, like, use some more social performance, right, that would actually fix some some useful meanings. Because it's not, first of all, it's not obvious exactly how some race issues map onto that. That tends to be a left-right debate that, you know, the, the that builds on this classic left-right distinction that's really about about economics. Um, and it, it's clear that that doesn't map perfectly onto issues like, like reparations or where you stand on Black Lives Matter or on police reform, right? Those are not, those don't all quite work together. And it's also clear, as, as Perry said, that the support for Joe Biden wasn't that, you know, his real turning point, like in South Carolina and his popularity with the black voters that are really pivotal in a Democratic primary was not specifically about his issue positions. It was it, it seems like based on available evidence, it was strategic. It had to do with having a track record. It had to do with with his affiliation with Obama and the Obama administration. But what it seems to me, the point I'm trying to get at here is like there is this narrative of of middle of the road centrist Democrats versus progressive Democrats. But actually, what most Democrats are is this sort of Obama Biden Democrat that's really not either of those things, right? It's like there's an embrace of moving in the direction of racial justice that can be that can play out in different ways. There's an embrace of moving in the direction of of, you know, more environmental regulations and talking about economic inequality. It's not a super radical philosophy, but it's very, but it's quite distinct from being a Republican. I think that's an idea people in a polarized environment have trouble holding in their head, that you can simultaneously not be Bernie Sanders and also not be Jeb Bush. Um, And so it's like this middle of the Democratic Party that I think where Biden finds himself, and I think his affiliation with Obama is not just about Obama's star power in the Democratic Party, but it's just about a it's about an a, approach to being a Democrat that's actually very popular um, in the Democratic in the Democratic Party, and I think that part of that is that it's a little ambiguous in terms of how it how it gets manifested in policy, and that's at a moment where we have all these really tense and salient issues. That's really, I think, um, it's challenging to get one's head around. And so there's this, this needs to define Biden in a, in a particular way. So those are some of my thoughts about 2020, not really all of my thoughts about 2020, but I think since we're coming up on an hour, Perry, I'm going to, uh, give you the last word and we'll move on. So James, you made this point that I'm thinking about as we've been talking, which is this I, you said something about how when things become individualized, it, it matters. And I do think that people, for whatever reason, Tamar Rice, Michael Brown, those things happen. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor have been individualized and people are learning about their lives and have really learned about them and sort of are grieving for them. And that is, I think, shaped this conversation. Do you have, like, because I study about racial issues a lot. I mean, do you have a sense about kind of why, what, like if you're thinking about, you know, making white Americans more sympathetic to black issues, is there something to be learned here from what's happened? And I think you're right, the individualizing has happened, but I'm not sure how, why, how it can be replicated. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think you're uh, at the right 
point. I just don't know what. Yes, and, and and I, and when I do when I say individualized, I'm of course not saying that there weren't individual issues before. Yeah, but I I don't. I mean, the short answer is I don't know. I think, and that's one of the reasons why I asked the Trump question in comparison with Nixon. I think part of it is the environment. I think it becomes easier in this environment for a different narrative to emerge around similar events than it was even in 2016. Um, but because I think in part because of the toxicity of, of, of President Trump on, on racial issues. And, you know, it, I think it could be the, the, the way in which the media is covering this as, as Omar Wasau and others have, have talked about. So, but I, I don't know. I think, you know, my, my first effort is just to figure out what's, what's happening and then maybe we can try to seek to, to replicate it. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what others think either, but you know, I, I don't know, but it changed like that. Um, and it was remarkable to me. But what changed it, at least when looking at my you know, white American friends, was that they're talking about these people as individuals and they're talking about their lives and they're putting themselves in their shoes and saying, what if that were me? What if that were my son? What if that were my daughter, my brother or my sister? And when, when the conversation is framed in that way, it becomes almost impossible to write off the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, so if I get the last word, I just wanted to say um, thank you all for having me. And I want to say, you know, just I don't know James as well, but I've read James and James has taught me a lot about how Congress works and how, or more importantly, how Congress should work and how it could work better. So I'm grateful for that, James. And then in terms of thinking, affecting my own thinking about politics, I can't name two people who have helped me think about the world of politics more than uh Lee and Julia have like like them Julia's insights about what's a democratic value and what's a core democratic value versus what's a democratic norm have like changed how I've seen the entire four years here and like some of Lee's work about race and identity in 2016 are what the rest of us are writing about now um, but Lee was writing about four years ago and I give a credit to Lee has moved on from like what the divides are to actually he's the one person in, in politics who's actually offered Offering some real solutions. I'm grateful for all the work you guys do and for this podcast. Thank you so much, Perry. That's really kind. That's a, a very high bar for for our guests uh, sign off. So yeah, thank you. I'm really, uh, really honored. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we could probably talk about this all day, but we should move on. So this has been Politics in Question. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.